Let me pray for us. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it gives us direction. And Lord, it gives us hope. But Lord, You tell us, while You're here on earth, You said that that this actually is more important to us than the very bread that we eat. And Lord, this is what our souls are longing for. It's Your Word. Lord, I thank You that Your church never created Your Word. But Your church has been created by Your Word. And Lord, I pray that right now that You would use Your Word to sustain Your church. Lord, to grow us, to help us. And Lord, as we tread on very, very sacred ground this morning, as we look at what it means to be a church, and as we look at the Gospel put on beautiful display, I pray, Lord, that You would help us. Lord, Your Spirit would would guide us and protect us as we look at this this morning. I pray all these things to You, Father, that they would uh, be brought through Your Son's work and be applied by Your Spirit. Amen. Well, last uh, actually two weeks ago, Pastor Chad opened up the book of 1 Timothy 4. So he introduced this by preaching the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy. And, and one of the things I appreciated about what Chad did uh, was he pointed out that this is not just a letter to a person, not just a letter to Timothy, but it's a letter to a specific congregation, namely the Ephesians. Um, by the way, I was listening to Chad's sermon, um, I wasn't here when he preached it, so I was listening to it, and I told him, he, I got about 18 minutes in, and he used the phrase, now as we close, and I was running at the time on a treadmill, I about fell off the treadmill. If he closes at 18 minutes in, he's never going to preach again. He would leave us in a real bad spot. Uh, luckily, he, uh, he, he kept going for another 15 minutes and redeemed himself. Uh, but anyway... Uh, one of the things he pointed out is this is written to a specific congregation, namely the Ephesians. And the Ephesians are an interesting bunch because we know a lot about the Ephesians. They're spoken of a lot throughout the New Testament. Now, the Ephesians are part of the, uh, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is on the western shore of modern-day Turkey. So the very western shore, more as you move into eastern Europe, it's right there. Paul started the church at Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And one of the interesting things about that is Paul actually spent anywhere the minimum two years, but some folks think up to three years in Ephesus. That's a long time. Uh, so he spends a significant amount of time there uh, preaching. Some folks believe he preached every day for two two and a half years uh, for up to five hours a day. That's a lot of teaching and preaching, closing 18 minutes in. Not Paul. But anyway, um, the... Uh, and it was a very fruitful ministry. Uh, it transformed lives in radical ways. We actually hear the story in Acts 19. And when I say transformed lives, it really transformed lives. Here's how we know it. One of the main markets, economic markets in uh, Ephesus was selling idols. And because of what God was doing at the church in Ephesus, it, the businessmen got together and said, we're in big trouble. Nobody's buying idols anymore. We, we're going to have to close shop. And so they get together and they start a riot. And Paul has to leave town so that he's not killed. Now, look, judging spiritual fruit is always tricky. There's no doubt about that. 
But you can rest assured, when the businesses that rely on the sale of idols are having to shut down, there's some spiritual fruit going on. Oh, wouldn't it be beautiful if God would render His His mercy upon our church and our community such that that abortion clinics around us no longer have any appointments to fulfill or, or gambling joints go belly up or strip joints have to shut the doors because nobody's coming. I don't think there would be any argument among us that God is doing a marvelous thing and there's great fruit. Well, that's exactly what happened at Ephesus. And then, as Chad did a great job of pointing out, this same church would struggle. We know about their struggles because before Paul writes 1 Timothy, which is, is about the congregation in Ephesus, he writes a book of Ephesians. And we learn about some of their struggles there. But we also learn about it in Revelation where he writes to them and says, I have this against you, that you have forgotten your first love, namely Christ. The text that we're looking at this morning is one of the most crucial passages in all the New Testament about the church. This is a passage about the very nature of the church, the purpose of the church, and and the protection that the church offers. For me personally, um, there was a major moment, I've mentioned this to some of you before, where... uh, Things for me in terms of career trajectory and where I think I was going radically changed. And one of the reasons was because I began to realize that the Bible has a lot to say about church. Now, I know that sounds simple and it sounds elementary to you, um, but when I say I began to realize this, I'm talking I'm well into seminary before this simple point strikes me uh, like cold water in the face. For so long, I thought the Bible was written to individuals, for individuals, about individuals. Now certainly, the Bible has a lot to say about individuals' Christian life. But what I began to notice is that no, the Bible has a lot to say about the church. And it's written about the church. And furthermore, it it even has things to tell us about how we should organize the church, how the church should function, how it should be led, what, what its goals and priorities should be. And I'll be honest, for the longest time, I always thought that the Bible was written to individuals and that what the church does is they get together as individuals and they just live life. And however you want to frame it is fine. That's going to just depend on cultural distinctions and you'll just figure it out. And this is one of those texts that struck me. No, 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 no. God has very deliberate plans and purposes for the church. And we do well to pay attention. And it took me from being one who wanted to intentionally, and I I hate to admit this now, but I'll, I'll admit it, I intentionally wanted to be lightly associated with the church. That was my goal. Um... And then the Lord in His providence took me to being, no, I'm very deeply passionate about seeing God glorified, Christ exalted, and lives changed through the local church. Because I believe very strongly the Scriptures talk about it a lot. And I think you're going to see that this morning. So first thing, let's look there in verse 12 says, I thank Him who has given me strength. 
Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Now, as Paul starts this autobiographical form for us and tells us about himself, he starts at the end and then he kind of moves backward. And his point is to make us somewhat surprised, to give us a point of, of uh, contrast. So he starts with saying, I thank God that he has, he has looked at me because he's judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. He's thanking Christ for letting him serve. You go, okay, that sounds, that sounds good. We'll keep going. Verse 13. The formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. <laughs> That's supposed to strike us as a surprise. On one hand, I thank God that He has he's called me to serve Him in this way. And then right after that, He tells us, and I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He, and and he, as He lists these things that He was doing wrong, these areas of, of sin in His life, he, he, kind of, he leads off with the least offensive. And then He moves forward. He tells us, and when I say least offensive, it's not like he's saying, you know, every once in a while I played some cards, or every once in a while I took down two cups of communion juice. <laughs> Listen to what he says. He says, I was a blasphemer. That is, I blasphemed God. And then the next thing he says is, I, I was a persecutor. That is, I, I used to purposefully, willfully, and unashamedly hurt Christians. And we know from Paul's story that he wasn't just a player on the persecution squad. Paul was more like the head coach. He, he was recruiting people to hurt Christians. And he enjoyed that. I think the last one is, is probably the saddest for Paul to have to write. Not only was he a blasphemer, not only was he a persecutor, he was an insolent opponent. He wickedly loved all that he was doing. In other words, I enjoyed hurting Christians. I enjoyed my blasphemous ways. So what gives? How do you go from being blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent to one who is in service for Christ. Keep reading. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in belief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What did Paul do to go from being this blasphemer, persecutor, and opponent to becoming a minister for Christ. Listen carefully. He did nothing. Not a thing. How did He change? He's very clear here. By the grace of Christ. He doesn't use small words here. He tells us that the grace of Christ overflowed, or your translation might have there, abundant or abundantly. The actual word would be translated tightly as something like hyper-plenty. It was 
plenty of grace, but then it was on top of that. That's the type of grace that overflowed towards him and left him one who was a blasphemer and hater of Christians to one who had faith, that is belief and love. And now we go straight to the Gospel. Verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and is deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I don't know if you could sum up the Gospel any better than that right there. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the blood-pumping truth that gives life and help and hope to churches. It is put here clearly and it's put here plainly. Christians are not just those who keep their noses clean. And they're not just those who do the right thing. Christians are messed up, broken sinners whom God has wonderfully, mercifully, and may I add, shockingly saved. If you are here today and and you're not putting your full weight, banking all of your hope on Christ, then you're in trouble because He is your only hope. But there is great hope. He is a God who saves even the most messed up. He saved Paul. And He can and He will save you. Now, it is real crucial here to understand what's going on. To not just think this is Paul going about off into a rant. To catch the context. Remember the context starting back there in in verse 3. If you'll remember in verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going into Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's the whole point he's on right now. He's trying to remind them not to let anybody else teach any other doctrine. He is intending what he is saying for the church in a specific situation. It's not an autobiographical rant. Instead, he's making a point, and the point he is making is that the gospel is the DNA of the church. It's the nature, the makeup of the church. The amazing truth that God saves sinners is not just one of the truths of the church, it is the truth of the church, it is what makes up the church. It's the shocking news that messed up creatures are changed. That we who did not deserve mercy have been given mercy. Those of us who enjoyed offending God are now saved. There is not a member of any church anywhere who has done anything to deserve salvation. Every church member, all of us, are here on a free ride. Every one of us. This was to me a very revolutionary point. And you say, well, how can that be revolutionary, Tim? That's, that's the gospel. Yeah, but that the gospel actually sits in the very fiber of the church's being 
changed me drastically. That is, I was fed up and tired of what I was seeing in life's life in church lives and lives of church members. I kept thinking, why? Why did the churches, so many churches look just like the world? Why is there not a seriousness about this great truth that we hold? Why are the people in churches not changing? I was frustrated. This is very helpful. Because what this says is that the DNA of the church says it will be made up, at least on this side of heaven, of broken people. That's the, that's the very nature of who we are. And I realized that for me to look at the church and to say, why, are the all, why is it full of broken people, number one, was incredibly arrogant. Because to do so was to look right past my own heart and miss all the broken places where it is messed up. And it's also, quite honestly, as ridiculous as walking into a hospital and saying, why is it full of all these sick people? That's how they got here. <laughs> That's part of the admission process. What's wrong with you, right? I mean, you don't walk into a hospital and say, what's wrong with you? I just want some food. No, that's not going to work, right? You get in there because you're sick. It's the exact same thing with the church. If you're in here, it's because you're sick. It's because you're broken. That's Paul's point. He is saying that it's crazy that he's judged faithful. But it's no crazier than any member of the church at Ephesus being allowed salvation. Paul is saying, I was really sick, but such were all of you, but for the grace of God. And so this tells us that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the most welcoming, charitable group of people on the planet. There is no room for us to look down at people for their past sins. There, there is no one who should be kept out for their past sins. It would be as silly as me laying up in a hospital, take that same analogy, looking out the window and seeing a sick person coming in and going, whoa, 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 you all don't let them in, they're sick. I'm sure a nurse there would be kind enough to say, hello moron, so are you, right? We should be the most welcoming people on earth. Everyone's welcome, especially the broken, because this is a place full of the broken. Amen. The church's DNA is the gospel. Point number one. Point number two. If point number one is the church, or the gospel, the church's DNA, then point number two is Christ, the church's purpose. Look at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason. Now, anytime you get Paul writing, and he writes so tightly. There's never a word that Paul writes is just thrown out there. When he says something like, for this reason, you need to get real giddy and excited because that means you don't have to search for the reason. It's there, right? So he says, but I receive mercy for this reason. He's getting ready to tell us why he received mercy. That in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. 
Oh, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So what is he saying? He explains that the reason that he was given mercy was that he could serve as an example for all the others that might come to eternal life. But he's also given mercy, saved, so that the name of Christ would be exalted. And, and we, we see that in verse 17, that the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What is He supposed to be given honor and glory for? That He would save a wretched soul like Paul. One of the points that's probably most common, most pervasive across the New Testament is this point that Christ purchases for Himself a broken, messed up, unpurified bride. Namely the church. And He's in the process of purifying her so that at the end of of the ages, there's going to be this moment when Christ is going to present to His Father His chosen bride and His Father is going to look on and say, she is gorgeous. And there's going to be this moment when everybody knows, but she used to not look good at all. And then there's going to be this question. How does she go from that to this? And the whole room is going to stop and look at our Lord and say, because He bore it all. Because He purchased it. There's so many texts here that are that stand as uh, wait for this. I'm, I'm, I've had have them uh, display four of them. Let me read one of them, and then you can write down the other ones. Colossians one, verse twenty one through twenty two. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in the body of flesh by His death. So you who are alienated, I mean, you are doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled by His body in His death. Now listen, this is Paul again. He's given us some help. In order, that's a purpose clause. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. It's exactly the picture I'm talking about. It's exactly what he wants. Other places you can look is what Jude tells us in Jude verses 24 and 25. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 6. Ephesians 5 verses 25 through 27. And there's many others. Once you go there, you'll see you can start branching out all across the New Testament. Uh, Those are just some of the ones directly from the epistles. As such, we can say that the The goal of the church is the glory of Christ. Or the purpose of the church is that Christ will look at and be praised. And this will happen as those who are in the church are being changed from being broken, messed up people into images that are reflections of the very image of God. And so if the Gospel describes the nature and the makeup of the church, then the exaltation of Christ is the purpose of the church. Let's return back to the hospital analogy. 
While on the one hand, it would be ridiculous to look at a hospital and, and, and be shocked that it's full of sick people. I mean, that would be ridiculous. On the other hand, it would not look good for the hospital if it would hurt the reputation of the hospital if someone walked in and said none of the people here are getting any better. They're just as sick as when they came in, if not getting worse. You see that? Yes, it's full of sick people, but if those sick people aren't getting better, that doesn't look good for the hospital either. And so it is with the church of Christ. Yes, to get in, you got to be broken. That's part of the Gospel. But if we let people stay that way, then we risk the very disrepute of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we should feel that there's this unavoidable tension. That is, the church is supposed to be in the business of admitting sick people, and yet a church full of broken sick people gives little glory to the name of Christ. So what do you do with that? You're supposed to admit the sick people, and yet a church full of just a bunch of sick people gives little glory to the name of Christ. Well, I think we can get after that proposed problem with this question. What is the difference between those in the church and those in the world? What is the difference between those in the church and those in the world? Well, we know what they have in common. We know that those in the, in the church and in the world are sick, broken, sinful people. That is, you can find people in the world that are sinful, and you can find people in the church that are sinful. The difference is, those in the church recognize their sinfulness, recognize their brokenness, and are trusting in Christ to change them and are seeking to be changed. When we get this distinction, I'm just making this one up. This is grounded right here in the text we're looking at. Look back at verse 13. Verse 13 of this passage, he says, "...though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent." Then there's a conjunction there. He says, "...but I receive mercy..." Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What is Paul saying? Well, what he's not saying is, I, I, I uh, acted in unbelief and therefore I should not be held responsible for what I was doing. Or I acted in unbelief and therefore I'm not blameworthy of what I was doing. He's not saying that at all because it makes no sense to thank God for mercy if he says that. You don't need mercy if you weren't blameworthy. You only need mercy if you actually are responsible and were blameworthy. So what is he saying? What Paul means is that what he was doing, he didn't recognize or even care that it was wrong. Or another way to say it, he was sick, but he never saw himself as sick. That's the ways of the world. Sick, but not recognizing sickness. Those who in the world don't recognize their sickness and certainly don't recognize their need for Christ. Those in the church recognize their sickness and recognize their need for Christ. The problem arises for the church when those in the church fail to see their sickness and fail to change. Let me say that one more time. The problem arises in the church when those in the church fail to see their sickness and fail to change. 
Well, what's wrong with that? Well, one of the most obvious things wrong with that is at that point, they are no different than those in the world. Because we just said those in the world are those who are sick and don't recognize it, right? So what am I saying? Problems arise when members continue in sin and fail to repent. And that's exactly what Paul is arguing for next. Point one, the gospel is the DNA of the church. Point two, Christ, the exaltation of Christ is the purpose of the church. Point three, meaningful membership is the church's gift of covering. Meaningful membership is the church's gift of covering. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. Paul understood the very tension that he's describing. He understood that there's going to be tension in the church because the church is made up of sick people and yet those people aren't supposed to stay sick. He understood that. So much so that he says, if you're in the business of working in the church and being part of a church, you better be ready for warfare. And so he tells them to wage good warfare. Keep going. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hamanius and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul explains that these who have not held on to their faith and not held a good conscience have shipwrecked their faith. They've, they've ruined it. And then he goes on and he names names. Hymenaeus and Alexander. He said that these two men were blaspheming and because of their blasphemy, he has, what does he say? I handed them over to Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but that feels like some strong language to me. If somebody says to me, I'm done with it, I'm handing you over to Satan. Um, at that point, I'm, I'm going to feel like there's got to be a softer way to put that, right? Um, not Paul. He says, I'm handing you over to Satan. Well, what does he mean? Well, we get this exact same language in only one other place in all of the Scriptures. And it's the exact same language. And who do you think wrote it? Paul. He's writing to another church that he started... The church of Corinthians, the, the church at Corinth, the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you remember, there in that chapter, Paul is after them and he's after them hard. And he's pressing them because he's found out that there's a man who's a member of that church who is continuing to be involved in that church who is having a continual incestuous sexual relationship. And they're doing nothing about it. And he calls them out and says, you all are arrogant for letting him stay. And then he says this. He says, verse Corinthians chapter 5, pick up there at the beginning. Let him, verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And you go on down. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, we learn something very helpful. 
When he says, deliver him to Satan, what does he mean? Well, it's exactly what he says, he tells him to do. Remove him. Get him out. Now he does this, it sounds to us very harsh, but he does this out of love for this man. What does he say? He says, do this, and we get another purpose clause, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now I don't have time to argue for all of this and and what all I think is going on there, but suffice it to say, I'll be honest, I think what he's saying is get him out, hand him over to Satan, and if if God is gracious, he'll allow Satan to attack him, probably in some way physically, so that it will bring this man to his knees and that by doing that, his spirit will actually be saved. That is, he'll come to a place of repentance and he'll be changed. He's saying the most loving thing you can do is quit kidding this man and get him out. And we see the exact same language here about Hymenaeus and Alexander. He tells them, deliver them over to Satan, but there's a purpose, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. If you let them hang out here, they're not going to learn that. Hand them over to Satan. I think there's a dozen things we can learn here, but we don't have time for a dozen. So let's go with four and then we'll feel good about that. First, the first thing to say, this is incredibly important. This is an incredibly important passage. It's in the Scriptures and we will do well to pay attention to it. Unfortunately, very, very few, and if you've been around churches, you know this today, very, very few churches are actually taking these passages seriously. And as a result, they have given up the incredibly uh, historical practice of church discipline. Folks, if you read any church history, especially beginning with the Reformation, you will find that church discipline just came with the program, namely because it came with the Scriptures. It's only within the last 50, 70 years that it's been given up. And it's sad And our churches show because of it. So the first thing to do is to stop and realize it's important and it's essential to the life of the church. Why? We'll continue to remember. Because we're full of sick people. That's how we got in here. And we're not supposed to stay sick. So you got to have a process to deal with that. There's a tension there. Second, notice that it is only for those who are unrepentant. Let me say that again. It is only for those who are unrepentant. A church need not publicly display every member each time he or she sins because truth be told, we would never get anything else done. Right? If you, if you publicly discipline me every single time I sin, you would be in big trouble. I mean, we would never get anything else done. And that's just me. If my wife were here, she would stand up and shout glorious Amen. Right? I know that. The concern only comes about when a member fails to see their sin and fails to repent of it. And now we got ourselves a huge problem. Because at that point, that member looks no different than those of the world. And I, again, don't have time to make the full historical argument here, but 
if you really want to look at what happened in the Protestant Reformation, I would argue that's the point of the Protestant Reformation. The biggest point of the Protestant Reformation was that the churches were no longer made up of those who were born again and acting born again. It had become very much polluted and looked just like the rest of the world. Okay, there's a lot more needs to be argued for there, so you can can that point. But just remember, uh, the key there is that it is about unrepentant sin. Third, notice, this to me was a fresh reminder this week. It's, if there's any point that, uh, of the sermon that just stuck out to me and brought me to my knees, it's this point right here. Notice the incredible covering that comes for the people of God in the church. Notice that. He, he says that we are to deliver this, these over to Satan. Now just listen. That means, we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, to disfellowship them from the church. We learn in Ephesians that this world has a prince. And he's a prince of darkness. Namely, Satan. The world is His playground. It's His. There is only one place to come in out of the reign of Satan. And I don't mean R-A-I-N there. I mean R-E-I-G-N there. There's only one place to come in out of His reign. That is the church of Jesus Christ. That's the only place we are given spiritual covering on this planet is in the church of Jesus Christ, and otherwise we are playing in Satan's backyard. What a beautiful deal. Christ didn't leave us alone. He gave us the church to come in and be covered by it. So much so that what Paul is saying in the whole process of church discipline points at is anytime someone looks just like the rest of the world, that is, they're sick, but not admitting their sickness, you you got to get them out. Because you're making them think that this is the real world. It's not. And here's the covering. The only way that they're going to be brought to repentance is put them back into Satan's playground. And pray that God would love them and be merciful enough to bring them back in. The other thing, the fourth point, is that this means that membership must be meaningful. And it really matters. Major breakthrough for me, probably about seven, eight years ago when this point just flooded my poor soul. Church membership really matters. Now, how to get about this? Well, first of all, if we believe the Scriptures are true here, and we do because they are, then if the only place that there's covering from Satan is inside the church, then we have to admit that just having your name on a church roll can't provide that covering. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why writing somebody's name on a piece of paper, why would that in any way provide spiritual covering? We know that's ridiculous. Just having your name. So it must mean that there's something else that provides that covering besides just having your name on the roll. I call that other thing church membership. 
I get that from Paul because he calls it church membership, right? We are members joined one to another and then he goes off. What if the hand says to the foot? You remember this part, right? But that's called church membership. That's the covering. The covering that you have from Satan and that I have from Satan is to be a member, to be joined in, actively joined in to the church. And the idea of membership really helps here. For example, if written on a sheet of paper somewhere is um, you know uh, uh, Tim's third ear, um, well, I can tell you that I haven't seen that third ear. I've only got two of them. That's the only two members of my body that do any hearing. My wife would say that they're very much impaired. But anyway, that these are the only two I've got. So what? Somebody else writes down on a sheet of paper, there's another ear that's doing hearing for me. I haven't seen it lately, right? Writing it down means nothing. But actually being joined, now that means something. And so here's the point. Church membership is the covering. Just having your name on a roll, that doesn't cover you in any way. Being joined in so that my life is known by others. See, that's where the covering starts. When another brother or sister actually knows me enough to call me out on my sin, oh buddy, that makes the evil one really scared. And then if I... Don't, I'm not just known by others, but I know other brothers and love them enough that I can go to them and say, oh, brother, you, I, you might not see this, but there's a sickness there. Got it. We're changing that. Do you see that? The craziest thing is that God doesn't just save a bunch of sick people. He makes us all the doctors and the nurses by His Spirit. That's just freaky, Right? But that's exactly what Christ does. That's the church. Now, a practical point here. What then should a church do if they believe this? And I think the best thing to do is make your roles actually match membership. Right? Take your roles and say, let's actually get it clean. Let's actually say our roles here. If your name's on the roll, you are in meaningful membership. That way people are clear about whether they're in membership or not whether they are receiving this covering or not. Such a beautiful, beautiful passage. God uses broken people to see broken people changed. And He does all of this by the glorious truth of the Gospel. So, wrapping up. The church's DNA is the Gospel. The church's purpose? To exalt Christ. The church's covering? Meaningful membership. Being, being meaningfully joined to one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank You very much for these words of Paul. <laughs> it just blows my mind that this written so many centuries ago to a church in Ephesus who desperately needed these words can be used by You, O God, to help a church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina who needs to hear these words. Lord, only You could do that. Only a God who is immortal, invisible, and internal and wise could do that. 
So, Father, I do pray, I ask that for me, for my brothers and sisters here, that you would renew for us a deep love for the church. And Lord, that you would bring us closer in our love for the gospel, our centeredness upon it. Lord, that that you would use us to be an example to the community around us of what it means to be joined to the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that. I pray for that. We ask this in Your name. Amen.